And welcome back to another episode of the KI Prime podcast with me, Alina Jenkins. Last time we heard from Professor Brian Hodges, who won the prize in 2016, and we spoke about his research in simulations, communication, and the importance of compassion. In this episode, I'm talking to Professor Lorelei Lingard, who was the prize winner in 2018 and the first female recipient. Lorelei is a professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Western Ontario and the inaugural director for the Centre of Education Research and Innovation at the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry. She's a leading researcher in the study of communication and collaboration in healthcare teams, and her research has contributed significantly to our understanding of how healthcare professionals interact and communicate with each other, which has led to new clinical and educational practices and increased patient safety. When I spoke to her recently, we talked about the main focus of her research. So my research program looks at the role of language on healthcare teams, both in the context of what it means for trainees in health professions to learn to talk a certain way and how that shapes the way they think and the way they behave, uh, and also the, what the role of language is when team members try to work together. How do they use language to collaboratively deliver care? Where does the language practices that have become habitual let them down in their collaborative care goals? So I've studied language in the context of healthcare, education, and delivery in lots of different clinical settings, surgery, primary care, pediatrics, loads of different settings. But my question has always been, what is language doing here? Is it doing what we want it to do? And if it's not, how would we understand it well enough to re-engineer it so that it would allow us to practice in the way that we hope to? People listening may think, I know how to speak. I know how to communicate. Have we been doing it wrong? No, not that we've been doing it wrong, but that we do it largely unconsciously. And as a consequence, it we are not attuned to the ways in which language is doing more than we ever thought it would. In some cases, it's doing other than we hoped it would. Um, so I think part of the challenge of language is that it is habitual and we're all pros. We're all experts. Of course, we all know how to talk to each other. And so it doesn't get that analytical gaze that so many things in medicine get. Because people assume, well, we're already come into medicine with that all intact. Teach me the other stuff. And I, so I think it's, it's the very um, everyday nature of it that poses the challenge. Was it the challenge of language which led you into this particular area of research? I think in many of the research projects in the first half of my career, the language only became evident because there was a challenge. When everything's going well, we pay it no attention. But when something doesn't go well, then it becomes the subject of scrutiny. So I remember feeling a little uncomfortable in many, many early studies thinking, I'm always poking a finger 
at medicine's use of language, why don't I ever have any nice examples? Why are all my examples examples of challenges and problems? And I, I came to realize that it's because it's it's largely invisible. It runs under the surface until something erupts. What I have tried to do in more recent years is also study explicitly how does it work when it works to, to force myself to attend to when it's going well and nobody wants to bother to pay attention. The fact that language is a challenge in healthcare shouldn't surprise us. What should surprise us is the fact that it goes well so often, given that the system that it's functioning in is pretty much a disaster, regardless of what continent you're on. Why is the system a disaster? Well, I think the system is not really set up to support some of the very qualities that we know are important in healthcare. So the relationship between the provider and the patient, we know how important that relationship is, but the way that appointments are scheduled across the board makes it really difficult to form relationship in that interaction. We know that collaboration and communication among the health professions is critically important to high quality care, but the structure of the system is not set up to support people to share information. Even the electronic health record, which a decade ago was going to save us all from everything that ailed healthcare, we now realize that even the software architecture of electronic health records creates barriers between what the nurse can see, what the social worker can see, what the surgeon can see. So the system in many levels, things like scheduling, things like computers, things like the way buildings are built, the whole system is set up to make it really difficult for communication to be functional. And yet people get the work done and they get it done very well the vast majority of the time. So I've become really interested in how does language work well? That leads me to a question about your research into the language of teams. Can you tell me more about the work you've been doing? So we've always been interested in the language of teams. I have never studied the language of the provider-patient interaction. That's been very well studied sort of the 20 years before I started my research career. And so I specifically chose to study the language among healthcare providers because it was a gap in our knowledge. And in that, I'm interested, I started out being really interested in interprofessional language exchanges, the ways in which not only in terms of the vocabulary and the jargon, but also in terms of what a good communication is considered to be, really varies by profession. So surgeons would consider a good communication to be something that sounded quite different than what the nurse might consider a good communication to be, and that's a socialized expectation. So I was interested in what we call in rhetoric genres, structures of communication that are recurrent and become the normalized response to a situation and how those genres vary by profession. And some of the communication tools that have become quite popular and I think done some really good work in medicine um, are genres that they're trying to teach various professions to use so that they speak the same genre if you will. So is that talking the talk? Can you give me an example? So one example from very early on in my doctoral research 
was uh, I was studying how third-year clerks in internal medicine learned to present the patient case on rounds, morning rounds, and they would orally present the case to the staff physician and the rest of the team. And one of the things I noted and wrote about was that they would get feedback about how and when they should be including what we call social history in the patient's story. Do we need to know that this is a homeless man who's had ongoing struggles with addiction? Um, And because of the feedback they were getting, a number of the clinical clerks interpreted that social history information was not important. And then the patient's stay would go on and they would, you know, maybe on day five or six, they would present the patient again and the staff physician would say, well, wait a second. You know, what is this person's social situation? Do they have a stable home to go to? How are they going to pay for their meds? Suddenly, social history was very important. This is an important educational nuance because the clerks told me that they assumed that social history wasn't medicine, that the message they were getting in the first few days of those case presentations was, that's not medicine, leave that to social work. But that's not actually what the attending physician meant. What they meant was, that's not relevant right now because they're acutely ill and we need to diagnose them and treat and get them stable. But when we want to send them somewhere, it's the most relevant thing. And this was a revelation to some of the students I interviewed because they were frustrated. They thought, well, you told me not to talk about that. Why do you want me to talk about it now? Two decades ago, this kind of research wasn't really happening. So has the study of language created a step change, not just in medical education, but in healthcare practices generally? It has. And I think that, it, you know, timing is, is everything in a research career. And so it's not just the, my study of this, but the timing of this. There was, there was a real shift in understanding, you could call it the, the discursive turn or the social sciences turn in medical education, where people became more and more aware that there were a lot of aspects beyond the technical and the biomedical that were really, really important and driving the way care was delivered. So as part of that broader movement, my efforts to reveal the practices of of team communication, I think, came at a time that it was very, very well received. And as a consequence, I think now it gets much more attention. It's in curriculum. It's in competency frameworks. It's increasingly going to be part of assessment for health professionals at various points in the in their training trajectory. You mentioned language being part of competency frameworks and assessments. How do you assess communication and language? And is it an individual or a group competency or is it both? Well, that is really what my work is doing now. So that for me is kind of the cutting edge of the work we're doing. It's It's very exploratory. I just finished talking to a colleague on a Zoom meeting saying, I have no idea if I'm going to be empty-handed in two years or not. Like this is really unknown. How do you assess what we're calling interdependence? Because the very problem is is in the question you asked, Alina, is it an individual competence or a group competence? So it's, it's neither and it's both. Traditionally in medical education, we assess individuals and we acknowledge that they work in team contexts, but assessment pretty much ignores that. It just says it's noise. We don't know what to do with it. Just zero in on the individual and their signal. We also, because of a lot of really good team research, have assessment tools for assessing team performance, but you can't find the individual in that team. You can't give an individual trainee their 
feedback on their contribution to the team performance, they're just dissolved into the team. So we're trying now to develop an assessment approach that gets at the individual's contribution to the team, which we are calling interdependence. It's, I think it's critical for our competency-based education movement because at the moment, for the most part, the way that what they're calling collaborative competency gets folded in is as one of the individual competencies. But that's not right because that implies that I carry it around inside my head with all the other competencies. I'm a professional or I'm not. I'm an expert or I'm not. I'm a scholar or I'm not. This is something different. I don't carry this around with me. It's something between me and the groups that I work in. So that's where my work is now. I am not an assessment scientist, so I'm I'm really flying by the seat of my pants, but it's an exciting place to be. <laughs> Healthcare has always been open to new ideas and seeing things through a different lens. I know you come from a humanities and rhetoric background, so has this openness helped you to discover new opportunities and challenges? I do love these kinds of challenges, and I... I also think that medical education is a unique academic space that allows you to take these challenges. So yes, I found them very receptive to different disciplinary perspectives. And in fact, it continues to enrich my my own work that I try and collaborate with people from very different perspectives because I learn. And it changes even the question I would ask in subtle but really important ways. So that If I had taken an academic position in a department of English, I don't think that would have been the same situation, the same experience for me. Um, But the other thing about that, that openness, is that medicine also allows you to fail. And I'm not sure what that's about, but I, I have felt a number of times in my career that I could be, I could fail. I could fail in this big grant. I could fail in this study. Um, and it, and it wouldn't be disastrous. It would be seen scientifically as you tried it and it didn't work out. And that's a contribution to knowledge. And that kind of scientific approach to, I forget who said it, but they said most science is failure. And if you're not failing a lot, you're doing it wrong. That's very much a biomedical science worldview in my experience. And that I think is the bigger air that is allowing this kind of, well, let's just ask and see where we end up and and being comfortable with that. I didn't feel that way in the humanities, that failure was okay. I think that that's a strength of the scientific community. I wonder if a lot of people listening to this will find that kind of approach empowering, particularly early in their career, that it's okay to fail. How important is that kind of mindset that, well, it could go wrong, but let's try it anyway? Well, I think the key is you have to give concrete support. So I'll give you an example. I would say probably within the first five years of my faculty appointment, I wanted to write for a particular big grant, really hard to get. And I said to my bosses at the time, I really want to do this, but it's going to take a lot of time. And I I have no idea if I'm going to get it. And their response was to pay for part of an, a research assistant salary for the year so that if I failed, my research could continue to go on because I was going to devote all this time to this big high risk thing. So not only was the cultural value there, but there was actual concrete support for me as a young faculty that I could afford to take the risk because I wasn't going to be 
completely empty handed at the end of the year if I failed. As it turned out, I didn't fail, but I could have easily. Can we talk about the fellowship and your involvement? What has it meant to them and also to you? The fellowship is among the most exciting things I did last year on my sabbatical. And a sabbatical is jam-packed full of all the exciting things you don't have time to do in a regular year. So that says something. I think the fellowship fills a gap in that we have been really good in the last decade or so at realizing real mentorship opportunities for young faculty and realizing support for faculty who are struggling. There are a lot of faculty who are transitioning from one research area to another, and we know they need support. But faculty who are doing really well and are kind of in the middle of their career, we have, I think, just been assuming that they've got it and they'll be fine. And that really is the area that I see the fellowship targeting. Those folks who are, they're already high flyers, but my goodness, what would they do if we devoted some real attention to their needs. And that's what the fellowship does. And for me, because mentorship is the most satisfying part of my work, well, maybe writing, writing first, because I love to write, and then mentorship. Um, To be able to, to participate in a mentorship program with that level of individual, super exciting. You're the first woman to have won the prize. Do you think the fellowship program is helping to address the lack of diversity? Absolutely. That is an explicit goal of the fellowship. And I think it's not it's not just a lack of diversity in the in the Karolinska Institute at Prize. It's a lack of diversity in our field. And also a lack of diversity. I mean, actually medical education is quite a global and diverse field, but the people who get mic time is a very, and by mic time, I mean keynote speakers, and they're a very homogeneous group. So, so the, the equity work extends far beyond the prize, but the prize is a really important, visible, symbolic place to say we need to actually meaningfully do this diversity work. Let's end by talking about the prize and what this meant for you when you won it in 2018. So can you see behind me, there's a little square gold frame with a burgundy mat. That's my medal. That's the Karolinska medal. It hangs in my, behind my piano in my living room. It hangs underneath my mother's gold medal from university, which she willed to me in her, in her will. So it, it, it means a lot to me. It's really difficult to actually express how much it means to me. Not only because it recognizes that you've really contributed something. And we all have imposter syndrome. We all second guess ourselves and kind of look back over a couple of decades and say, really? That's all you did? Couldn't you have done more? So it's a really nice kind of sense that, yes, I have actually contributed something to the field. But I have to say that being the first woman to win it made it just that much more meaningful for me. I have really tried to support female academics and scientists um, as I got into roles where I could support other people. And just to have that recognized is enormously important. This is the wonderful thing about the prize. It reaches so many people. What are the impacts on the field of medical education? 
the prize, ma- I mean, I showed you the medal on my wall, but the prize matters on another level too. It matters symbolically in that it reflects the legitimacy of medical education research. And I think that what the foundation has done in setting up the prize is to advance the legitimacy of our scientific domain in a way that that is very different and I think profound from any other efforts in our field. So that for me is the other, there are lots of prizes in medical education research and many folks have multiple prizes. But this one for me, um, because it is the sibling of the Nobel Prize, there's this sense of not just my work is recognized, but the field is recognized. And our field is young and we're all working really hard to build it and we want it to have staying power. We don't want to look back in 25 years and have it be gone. So that to me is another really important part of the meaning of the prize for me personally, but also for the field in general. Next time on the KI Prime podcast, I'll be joined by David Irby, Professor Emeritus of Medicine in the Division of General Internal Medicine and the winner of the prize in 2010 for his finding that medical expertise is necessary yet insufficient to become a great teacher in medicine. For now, goodbye. (laughs) 